Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And while you're turning there, let me read this passage of Scripture to you in the book of Acts. And we'll use that as a, uh, as a diving platform, so to speak, for Philippians. In Acts 5, uh, verse 17, reading from the King James, it says this, Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Pharisees, were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Now listen to what this angel says to the apostles. He says, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Get that. All the words of this life. Amen. Christianity is a different kind of life. It's not some kind of dogma. It's not some kind of... uh, you know, list of principles. You hear about, you know, principles all the time in sermons. It is a different kind of life. And that comes from an angel from heaven. The angels didn't tell the apostles, well, um, go speak about the Ten Commandments being put on the walls of schools. Go give the people some kind of principles to live by, to make their lives a little bit better. Go tell them some principles of self-help. Self-help. No, the angel says, go tell the people the words of this life. And the words of this life includes the mystery of Christ. And that's what we're preaching today, the mystery of Christ. Now, Let me go through a couple other scriptures about Jesus because we're going to take a a focused point look at the Lord Jesus Christ in the Pauline epistles. In John 2.17, this is after Jesus has, what, cleared out the temple. And you can read about it in John 2. At the end of that... John writes, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now that's a quote from Psalm 69, and they, the disciples remembered that about Jesus. Let that sink in a minute. Zeal for your house will consume me. And in John 4, Jesus says to his own disciples, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Let me say that again. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That gives you an idea of Jesus' mission. Those two verses kind of describe Jesus on the earth in the mind of Christ. Zeal for your house will consume me. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. 
Now, let's go over to Philippians 2, verse 5. Now, I usually preach from the King James. I like the King James because it's, even though it has uh, Old English, it's pretty faithful to the Greek for the, for the large majority of the time. But here, um, here the translation doesn't, doesn't translate so well. Um, in the King James. And so I'm going to read to you, we're going to read uh, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, and concentrate on those verses today. And I'm going to read to you my own translation, which is a mashup from the King James, the New Revised Standard Version, which is a modern version, and my own uh, construction of the Greek or translation of the Greek. This is Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mindset be in you, or be in y'all. Which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited for his own advantage. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, having been found in the likeness and schematic as a man, He humiliated himself, having become obedient to the point of death, even death by a cross. Now, let's unpack this. Let's unpack these scriptures because Paul says, let this mind be in you. It's it's an imperative. You know, imperatives in the Greek are a little bit hard to translate in English. But this imperative, and, and that's because when you get into translations like the King James, you want a word-for-word translation, and it's hard to translate it that way. But, you know, an imperative is kind of like uh, one imperative is an adult to his teenage boy or girl. said, so go clean your room. That's an imperative. You go do this. And here, Paul says, you think this way. You adopt this mindset. You adopt this thought pattern, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's why I read through, uh, to you those two scriptures. Zeal for your house has consumed me or eaten me up. That's his mindset. That's his frame of reference. My meat is to do the will of him who sent me. That is, a frame, that is a mindset, and that's one of Christ Jesus. Now, we have those two quotes, but here in Philippians, it goes a whole lot deeper. But in 2.5, Paul writes to us as Christians. He said, you adopt this mindset, which was also in Christ Jesus. And let me bring this out. When he says you, you in the Greek is plural. So he's speaking to the church. And he's speaking to uh, when, when you see the plural in the Greek, he's speaking on an individual level, but also on a corporate level. Is as a preacher. If I come to preach at a church and I say y'all, y'all is a great word grammatically when preaching the gospel because Paul uses it all the time. 
It's not individual, you, you, you. It's y'all. Y'all adopt, adopt this mindset, which was also in Christ Jesus. Many times today we hear preaching about Jesus' teaching, you know, follow the teachings of Jesus. What Paul says is you follow the man himself. You follow what he did, his own mindset. Amen. Now let's go on to Philippians 2.6. And this is wild. This is, this is gospel. This is, these are the words of this life that the angel was talking about. Who, being in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited for his own advantage. King James breaks down on this because it tries a one-for-one translation of the Greek word, and you just can't do it. So, who, being in the form of God... Paul is not saying, well, Jesus kind of looked like God, but he wasn't. Let me go through a few scriptures about that. John 1, 1 and 1, 2. We read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that the Word was, was Jesus. Now, going back again to the King James, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That word with is pros in the Greek. It doesn't mean that he was sitting around with the Father. What that means is he was one-to-one with God. Um, One one illustration could be two boxers. You know, before they enter the ring, a lot of times they have this way in, and what do they do? They stand nose to nose. And what you do uh, in looking at that is you size them up. You know, one guy's taller than the other. One guy has longer arms than the other. One guy is more muscular than the other. And here, when you go back to John 1.1, and it says, and the word was with God or pros God, you look at two, two personalities, and they're not the same. They're not identical twins, but by nature and by character, they are equivalent. They are the same. He stood toe-to-toe with the Father. That's the thought coming over. And then in verse 2, we see the very same thing. The same was in the beginning with God or pros God. The preexistent word. And what Philippians 2.6 says, who being in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited for his own advantage. Now we can get into, uh, uh, as Paul says, uh, sometimes in the word, I have to speak to you as an ordinary man, to kind of get this point over, you know, for his own advantage. Well, usually what we see in the world is people, what, use their position, their power, their prestige, and their status for what? To advance their own interests. They might do something that is, quote, beneficial on the side, but they use their, what, position and power 
to further their own interests. And here in Philippians, Paul says, Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not regard equality as something to be exploited for his own advantage. And then, then we start the downward trajectory of verses 6, 7, and 8. And let me throw in here Romans 15.3. So you get the gist of this. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee, or God the Father, fell on me. In Romans 15, Paul recounts, in fact, this is reflective of verse 6. He did not come to please himself. Remember, my meat is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Now we go on to 7, and this starts the downward trajectory of Christ Jesus. But he emptied himself. He emptied himself. One way to translate that is he poured himself out. Taking the form of a slave, some translations say servant, taking the form of a slave, having been found in the likeness and schematic, my translation, as a man. Remember, Gabriel appears to Mary and said, you're going to be with child. And his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. God became a man. In Philippians 2.7, you could spend a year, you could spend years actually thinking of just these three words. He emptied himself. So in verse 6, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be used, exploited for his own advantage. And then it, it sinks down, drops down and says, he emptied himself. How? taking the form of a slave, having been found in the likeness and schematic of a man. Now, it used to really bug me about this taking the form of a slave, because when you go into the Gospels, you don't see that Jesus was a slave. You know, growing up as a kid, in, uh, my, my parents would drop me off or drop the kids off in, in Maryland at my grandparents' house for the summer. And all we had to read was a couple King James Bibles and Good News for Modern Man, and that was the only thing in the house. So, you know, flipping through Good News for Modern Man and sometimes King James, I would come across this scripture. It said, taking the form of a slave. What do you mean, taking the form of a slave? Jesus wasn't a slave. Anywhere in the Gospels, you don't see him as a slave, but actually he was. You see, we flatten out the drama of redemption by not paying attention to the deeper things of Scripture. In Isaiah, we find four servant songs 
And this is where you get into uh, the theologians have a lot to deal with this. You usually don't hear about this on Sunday mornings. Because why? On Sunday mornings, we have flattened out the Gospels. We have flattened out redemption. Instead of seeing what the whole drama of redemption is all about. But you go back to Isaiah. Um, in fact, uh, one small part of one servant song is Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. And let me go ahead and read that so to give you a little bit more depth of what Philippians 2.7 is saying. In the King James, it says, Behold my servant. You could read it as, Behold my slave. Whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. You hear hear echoes of Isaiah in the Gospels on, on those two phrases. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. That's one servant song. Another servant song, one that we're a little bit more familiar with, goes from Isaiah 52, 13 all the way through to Isaiah 53, 12. And that is where, what? Himself bore our sicknesses and carried our diseases. That's part of the servant song. So, so when we go back to Philippians 2.7, when it says he emptied himself, he became a man. And he not only became a man, he became a slave. And that harkens back to those scriptures. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. My meat is to do the will of the one who sent me to finish his work. What is it about a slave? A slave is all about his master. He doesn't have a life of his own. He doesn't carry anything of his own. Everything he does is for his master. And that's what Jesus says in the gospel. I'm here to do the will of the one who sent me. Of myself, I can do nothing. He says in another place in the Gospels. Amen. And then we go on to Philippians 2.8. And 2.8 continues this downward trajectory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, He humbled himself, having become obedient to the point of death, even death by a cross. Now, when you go through the English translations, they all say he humbled himself, but really that doesn't, that doesn't carry the import of what is being said in the Greek. It's better translated, he humiliated himself. He gave himself over to humiliation. Having become obedient to the point of death, even death by a cross. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. 
as I said, what we usually do, you know, we have flattened out the plan of redemption by just uh, reading down without, you know, just reading. Uh, you have the, uh, you know, you, ha- you have the confession of the church saying, well, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me, you know, Jesus died for my sins. Well, that's true in a way, but that is flattening everything out if that's all you consider, that's, if, if that's the end stop. When you get into the words of this life, you see the rescue mission had been, uh, God had effectuated the rescue mission for mankind to save you over thousands and thousands of years. And so you, you have to unpack these scriptures to see what the drama was all about, to see what God had set up and what was necessary to save you, to effectuate redemption for you. It's not just that Jesus died, it's how he died. Amen. So we see that here in this verse. He humiliated himself, having become obedient to the point of death. And it's not just that he died, because Paul drills it down and says, even death by a cross or by the means of a cross. Many of us haven't really questioned why a cross. Why in the world does a cross matter? You know, you, you hear this in preaching all the time, said, well, Jesus came to die. Well, he came to, he came to finish the work of the one who sent him. And that involved death, but not only death by itself, but death by means of a cross. Now let's unpack this a little bit with Scripture. Going to one of the servant songs, reading from the King James, Isaiah 53, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when he shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. What Isaiah prophesies about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he came plain. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That is part of the humiliation. Now, we go over to Luke, Luke 22, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke records this, in his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops falling down on the ground. Now, think about that in the drama of redemption. There are many men throughout history, scores of men, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, who face death without sweating blood. They know that they're going to die. You have men on death row. You have men who were, uh, you know, uh, before firing squads. Uh, you name it. Any, name anything. And uh, because it probably has happened sometime in the history of mankind that one guy was facing death and what? There's 
hardly any record at all of anyone sweating blood when he's facing death. So when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who we just read, emptied himself and took on the form of a man, the schematic of a man, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and Mark says he is terrorized by what he sees is before him. And when you go over to Luke, you see that he is starting to, he's so stressed, so terrorized by what he sees coming upon him that he starts to sweat blood. Now, years ago, I was interested in this. Could this really happen? Because I ran across some articles where some, you know, some theologians said, well, you know, this, this just doesn't happen. It just can't happen. But there, there are documented cases where men have sweated blood when they're facing death. One that comes to my uh, memory the most, I mean, most memorable for me, is that there was a, uh, there was a convict, a criminal convict, who uh, they had to transfer from one country to another, and I forget what country it was, and uh, he was deathly afraid of the sea, but he had to travel by ship. And so they chained him to the deck of the ship to make sure that he didn't mess with the crew and he didn't escape. Well, after he was chained to the deck, a huge storm came up, and this guy is freaks out. I mean, he is just as scared of the sea as anybody could be, but he is chained to the deck, and they leave him out there. They leave him out there to weather the storm because, you know, they're trying to man the boat and make sure the boat doesn't sink. When the storm was over, they went to go check on him, and they found that he was so terrified of what he went through that he had actually sweated blood. It's, it's physically possible to sweat blood under such stress, and we see that in Luke 22. What I'm trying to emphasize here is, when you go back to Philippians 2.7, having become obedient to the point of death, even death by a cross. So Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's not only facing death, but he's facing death by means of a cross. Now, a cross, a cross, crucifixion is an ugly, ugly way to die. No doubt about that. And uh, I've got a book in my library of a surgeon who goes through uh, what a man, how a man dies by crucifixion. And it's, it's tough. It's ghoulish. No doubt about that. But again, men in history have died all kinds of ghastly deaths, and they haven't sweated blood. Why is Jesus sweating blood? Well, when you go back to the Old Testament, you begin to understand more of the plan of redemption, more of the words of this life. Because in Deuteronomy 21 and 22, it says this, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version because it's easier to understand. It says, when someone is convicted of a crime punishable by death and is executed, and you hang him on a tree. Verse 23, his corpse must not remain 
there all night upon the tree. You shall bury him that same day. Now listen to this. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. In the King James, it says, For he that is hanged is accursed of God. You must not defile the land the Lord your God is giving you for possession. And that is part of the instruction to say, you take that body, you take that corpse down. He must not remain all night on the tree. So what you see is a prescription in Deuteronomy for someone who is convicted of a crime punishable by death and the Jews decide to execute him and they say, well, we're going to execute him and we are going to hang him on a tree and that way he's cut off from God and he's cut off from the land of the living. And we see that Jesus was facing that in the garden. And that goes all the way back to Philippians 2.7. Talk about humiliation. He gave himself over to the plan of the Lord. And this was the plan of the Father. That he suffered death, not just an abstract death. You know, in Nazareth, they took him. They got so mad at him that they took him to the brow of the hill and they wanted to throw him off. But what? God the Father intervened by a gift of the Spirit and Jesus walked right through him. Why? Because that wasn't death by cross. Jesus had to be hung on a tree. And that's one reason why you see in, in the Gospels that the Jews handed him over to the Romans and they demanded that Jesus be crucified. Remember the chants from the gospel records. Crucify him, crucify him. Because they had in mind Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. They wanted him to be cursed of God. And if you have any doubt about that, then you go to Galatians 3.13. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is every man, who hangs on a tree. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23, in referring to Christ's death by cross. Amen. So, this is all, uh, this is all unpacking Philippians 2.8. He humiliated himself, having become obedient to the point of death, even death by a cross. And when I talk about downward trajectory, you have where, what, the word is with God, and then he, what, empties himself, he humiliates himself all the way down to death by a cross where he is a curse. Let me read to you some of the servant songs, portions of the servant songs that I mentioned, or you could call them the slave songs, because what? He took on the form of a slave. He became the suffering servant 
that Isaiah identified like 600 years before his death. Isaiah 53.7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Why? Because he's doing the will of the one who sent him. Isaiah 50 Verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. You'll see where I'm going with this after going through some of these verses. Because what does Paul say? You carry this mindset. Isaiah 50, verse 6, this was the mindset of Christ Jesus. I gave my back to those who struck me. I gave my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. Isaiah 52, 13 and 14, see my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. If you don't understand the context of the song, you would think, oh, well, this is exaltation. It's not. He's exalted and lifted up on the cross. That's what this is about. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very High, just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond any human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals or men. Let me read that to you again, because this is the mindset of Christ Jesus. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. And then you see the context of what those words mean. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond any human semblance, and his form was beyond that of mortals. Isaiah is prophesying about the cross. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised and we held him of no account. Why is that? Why is he held as we held him of no account? In fact, in verse 4, going down, it says, Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. Why? Because he became a curse on that cross. Remember the gospel accounts where the high priest and the scribes came to Golgotha and they mocked him. You ever wonder why they mocked him? I mean, he's dying on the cross and they're they're openly mocking him. 
As a kid, I thought that's so weird. But when you understand the plan of redemption, the scribes and the high priests thought they were doing God a favor by executing him, by having him cursed of God. They had no idea what the plan of redemption was about. And so they go up and they mock him. They said, oh, you think you're the son of God? Well, come down from that cross and we'll believe you. And that's what you see in Isaiah. We accounted him stricken, struck down by God. Another way of saying that is, we accounted him cursed by God. And that was in line with Deuteronomy. And that all goes back to his humiliation. Now, Isaiah, the servant song, says... So marred was his appearance beyond that of any mortal. How was that? How did that come about? We see it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus became sin on the cross. Became sin on the cross. Again, going back to a servant song. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And let me add this, Isaiah 53, 8. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Speaking about the cross. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. You see, you see there, Isaiah is prophesying about the curse, him becoming a curse. Why? He was stricken for the transgression of my people to effectuate redemption. Now, I don't want to leave this out because this is also part of the servant song. In Isaiah 50, verse 7, it says, The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus could face Golgotha. He could face death on a cross because why? I know that I shall not be put to shame. He knew that he would be raised up. He would be vindicated. He knew he would be resurrected on the third day. But he suffered that humiliation for us. For us, which was the Father's plan. Remember, he says, my meat is to do the will of the one who sent me. Now, let's turn the corner on this and go back to Philippians 2, 5. We see what Jesus did. We see, we see him, what? We see him equal with God, and he didn't use that for his own advantage. And what? You see this downward trajectory all the way down to death on a cross. Why? He gave himself fully over to the will of the one who sent him. And what does Paul say to us? He says to us in Philippians 2.5, 
you carry this same mindset. The same one that he had. And what do we hear in the Gospels? I think it's John 20. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Paul tells us, we empty ourselves out for him. That's the mindset that we carry. We've been born again. We've been baptized with the Spirit. And what? We lose our life so we can gain it. Remember that uh, Jesus said in Mark 8, if you lose your life, you're going to find it. If you find your life, you're really going to lose it. And so the imperative for the church, for those in the church, is that you carry this same mindset, which was also in Christ Jesus, and that is you pour your life out for him. We've been bought with a price. We are no longer our own. We are slaves. We are slaves of Christ. Uh, Paul calls himself a slave of Christ in Romans 1.1. Paul, a called apostle, slave of Christ. I challenge you to do this. Take your Bible. Go into uh, an inner room in your house. Get alone. Get before God Almighty and see if you can confess that you are a slave of Christ. It's hard to do because you have to be honest with him. But that's the imperative that we have, that we become his slaves doing his will. No matter how, what, how much we have to empty ourselves and we have to what? Give ourselves over to humiliation. But in the end, what? We are vindicated in the same way that Jesus is. We will be resurrected. Amen. Amen. Let me read to you Isaiah 50, verse 7. The servant song again. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. He has set his face like flint. You see that in the Gospels where he sets his face towards Jerusalem. Why? To die on that cross. You see how this song applies to him. What? He sets his face to do the will of the one who sent him. We have the same imperative. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And then the, the last part of that verse also applies to us. I know that I shall not be put to shame. Amen. Amen. Let me conclude the message with a benediction. Now may the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect or mature in every good work, what? To do his will. And that means pouring out your life. Pouring out your self-determination.
working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.